Okay, how are you feeling? Very nervous. You know I'm your wife, right? That's why I'm nervous. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Sembrano. Together, we speak to people around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or folks who just want to develop their fonts and letter forms for screen printing and relief. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the edition's first debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insight that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of experience. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for artists and printmakers everywhere. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Tim Pauschak an artist and printmaker who will be featured in Print Austin's 5x5 exhibition. He's also my husband. We talk about his experience growing up in a factory town on Lake Erie and the way it's changed within just one generation, going to graduate school at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, how and why we value different kinds of labor, and why he's making work about home. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to punch that clock with Tim Pauschak. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Hello, Miranda Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've man. been thinking about that for weeks. I was going to do this <laughs> intro. <laughs> no, it's fitting. It's fitting. It's what you used to text me every morning. It's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, the rest of it I can't say on tape. No, no, you no. can't, you can't, uh, <laughs> you can't say that, those texts. So I feel like this is a moment that the Pine Copper Lime Hello Print Friend media empire has been leading up to for like three years. Yeah. At least Ben's been waiting for it. Yeah. One fan out there. <laughs> this is for you, Ben. And so it's the interview in which I interview my husband, the printmaker, Timothy Pauschak. And you're all about to find why, find out why I'm the editor and Miranda's the host. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason it came about really is because you're in the Print Austin 5x5 yeah. exhibition. And so every year, this podcast and a couple others partners with... 
Print Austin and now Print Santa Fe, the inaugural year, to talk to some of the 5 by 5 awardees, the people who were juried into the show. And this year, you were among them, and so welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you. You know what's weird is that the judges I tried to bribe in Santa Fe rejected me, and the ones in Austin who I don't even know accepted my work. So you can't even say that this is like... nepotism nepo baby you know fair and square yeah no no that nepo baby is uh is is trending right now so it's a good thing okay uh, yeah yeah well so i've prepared some questions for you thank god (laughs) because i don't know how we're gonna do this otherwise i know and so for those of the listeners out there who do not know you, Tim. Would you please let them know who you are, where you are, what you do? <laughs> My name is Tim Pauschek, and I am a printmaker and a sound editor for a podcast that I don't listen to. And I live in Santa Fe at the moment, but because I'm married to you, I don't know how long that will last. <laughs> We'll probably move somewhere, <laughs> but for the moment, I'm in Santa Fe, and uh, I think that's all the questions that mm-hmm. you asked. Yeah, yeah. And where did you grow up, and what role did art play in that part of your life? Yeah, so I grew up in Dunkirk, New York, which is near Buffalo, a couple snowdrifts away, and art is a weird thing in my I mean I don't know if it's weird but like I definitely didn't go to museums or anything like that but both of my brothers would draw a lot there was a lot of like copying uh Mortal Kombat characters mm. and my dad would it was also really good at drawing and he would copy like cartoon characters like he loves the so my dad for anyone who doesn't know him is like nearly six foot tall used to be able to bench like 300 pounds like he's a big guy and he loves snow white and the seven dwarves so like that's like what he would draw and paint yeah so like i just kind of grew up watching them draw and paint for fun and you know i was the annoying little brother who just like looked over their shoulder and wanted to watch it happen and i would draw my own stuff but i would always get so frustrated drawing that i'd just like rather watch them weirdly enough Hmm. Well, but at some point you must have taken up your own drawing or your own practice, even as a young child. When did that happen? Yeah, when it happened, I don't even know really. But yeah, I think I was just talking with my friend and business partner, Josh, here in Santa Fe. And we were talking about like drawing like Dragon Ball Z characters and like I said Mortal Kombat characters like we used to have I my brothers and I we had these kind of like the guidebooks for video games so you draw a lot of that and then my cousins and I we used to make these trading cards there's this cartoon called Pelswick what yeah it was like, like the main character was like in a wheelchair and he had these two friends and I don't even remember the show at all but there was this one episode where they were, like, playing this card game, and me and my cousins would actually, like, we cleaned out my closet, and we turned our cl- my closet into, like, a card shop where we, like, made these cards, and, like, the game had no rule, but it was, like, basically, like, we were, like, 
doing Yu-Gi-Oh before Yu-Gi-Oh was a thing. And but so like I guess cards you made. Yeah, that we made. So I guess like that would be like some of the first things is like drawing out of these like video game guidebooks and then like making our own like trading cards, like playing cards, like Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, that kind of stuff is when I started drawing. I guess really if I could think about it. Mm-hmm. And then from there it just kind of you know, like I th- we've had a couple of guests who say this like, yeah, I was a kid in art class who like I guess did it the most, right? Because I did it at home with my friends and my cousins and my brothers. And so, like, I was a kid who was like, oh, like, you're the art kid in school. Mm. Like, I just kept drawing. So it just kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes wonder how much of our identities, particularly when we're that age, get formed by how much people just reflect us back to ourselves. Like, was I the weird kid because I was told I was the weird kid? And then I was like, well, I'm going to lean into this. Right. You know, here comes the pink hair. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I had a, a, I had like a seventh grade teacher who like really taught us like how to like start drawing. Like it was weird. Like we would like do perspective and like it was the most like in-depth art classes I can remember. We had a sketchbook with like assignments and like that was kind of cool. And then my eighth grade teacher who I think like was actually like, a proper artist like painter like totally fucking nuts and I like did not want to do art in high school because of her I did eventually and I'm glad I did but yeah so it's I don't know like I I guess like in a way yeah you lean in you lean out like how much I don't know Mm. yeah I just kept doing it I feel like I've got a bit of a, a a little bit, just slightly more familiarity with your practice than other guests who have been on. So I want to encourage you to maybe talk a little bit more about your hometown, just because I feel like it'll sort of set the scene for your later work. So that was your home life. That's your, your older brothers, your cousins, your dad. But tell us about Dunkirk. Yeah. Okay. Dunkirk's strange, but also like normal. I don't know. It's normal because I grew up there. So, like, it's right on Lake Erie. It was a big, like, factory town, steel town. Uh, Brooks Locomotive was there. Uh, so they built trains at one point. Did steel. My, my grandfathers were train workers and steel workers. There was a pier for, like, shipping. There's a coal-fired power plant. And, like, I don't really know exactly the history and, like, who knows how much is, like, fact versus fiction because, mm. like, that's a big part of, like, growing up there is, like, a lot of nicknames and teasing and storytelling, tall tales, tall tales. Mm-hmm. yeah, like, and so, and we'll probably get into some of those stories later, but, like, it used to be a booming industrial town and then everything moved to Buffalo mm-hmm. and then everything moved south. So it's now the area of called the Rust Belt, you know, yeah. it's like that old steel town. And it's it's weird, like you it used to be I would hear these stories that like if you got if you didn't like the job you were at, you could quit and by lunchtime just walk down the street and have another job. Mm. Now it's kinda like and this was probably the same way then, but now that's kinda gone, but like you can walk like one block after one block and if you only have like one drink every bar you hit like you're gonna be fucked up in like a couple of blocks so by lunchtime yeah by lunchtime (laughs) probably before breakfast actually if you're working third shift there's a couple of bars that like they're open 
and and that's like an interesting thing too like uh erie county anyway not chautauqua county which is where dunkirk is but erie county where buffalo is like bars are open till 4 a.m and that's like a holdout from that like rust belt steel factory era where like guys getting out of second shift could stay out later and get drinks but there's still bars that are open like the vets club that i used to go to that my grandfather founded after world war ii with some of his friends they're they're open really early like you can go get a drink at like 9 10 in the morning because you're getting out of work at, on your third shift mm-hmm. and so like you can go get a drink at like nine o'clock in the morning so it's this weird like hard-working joke-telling teasing loving but also definitely like not politically correct alcohol fueled weirdness of all sorts of shit going on Mm. yeah yeah could you tell the story and i hope i get this the setup right okay but the story of is it your grandfather in the train yeah so my grandfather like i mentioned brooks locomotive they used to build locomotive engines there And when my grandfather was in the army, uh, he was in the Korean War, and he was, I forget where, somewhere they're traveling out west, getting ready to be shipped out or whatever, and one of the, like, privates in his troop or something like that looks at my grandfather, he's like, oh, where are you from, Bob, you know, like, probably some hick town I never heard of. My grandpa's like, yeah, okay, whatever. He just kind of keeps his mouth shut, which is weird for my grandpa Bob because he's <laughs> he's more of the hothead, which is where probably I get it from. And uh, but anyway, they get they get further out west, and they're going up like a mountain pass or something. Anyway, they gotta change the engine on this train. They gotta switch it out so that they can get over these mountains. And on the side of the locomotive says "manufactured in Dunkirk, New York." And my grandfather looks at the guy and says, "That's where I'm from." So that's kind of the yeah. the train story. Yeah, yeah, because it was like the the more powerful train. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just feel like that that story always makes me a little bit emotional to hear, and I think there's just a lot in there. Not the least of which is a time and a place in our country where manufacturing was a source of pride Mm. not only for the towns but of course for the people in the towns that that someone could be proud of what they made or what they were part of making or what part of their people made yeah and that there's just a kind of honor in that and and knowing that the gutting of that industry and the real economic blight that followed it just sort of knowing all the trickle-down effects that's had to the core of our country to our country's values and it for me it's like all summed up in that one story from two young boys heading out to the korean war yeah totally and you know and like you said it, it carries through those areas where it used to have this like sense of pride and now it I was at a music was a big part of growing up for me and I was at a dead heart show in Buffalo and the guitar player, the bass player, one of them said something about Buffalo, which is like, we love being from here, but we hate being here. Mm. And I think that kind of is like the, the more recent truth of that is like certain things have been lost and you love this thing you call home, this place you call home. But you, you also realize that like, 
in a lot of instances, like you've got to move away. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you, you kind of can get stuck in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we could fill up the rest of the entire podcast talking about the, <laughs> the decline of American manufacturing and the economic and social consequences. Cause it's, I know it's something that's deep in your work, but I think we'll probably circle back to it, but I want to make sure that we now get a chance to talk about how you came to printmaking. I took art classes in high school, and I think it was junior year, like the end of my junior year, I got the chance to make printmaking, like to to do prints in high school. And the way that came about was M.C. Escher was my favorite artist, right? And I was looking at my my teacher and... I was like, well, MC Escher does drawing and painting. I'm going to be doing drawing and painting. And my teacher, who has had an MFA in print, I think, or was working towards one, he's like, well, no, he, he does prints. He's a graphic artist. He does printmaking. And I was like, okay, well, so do I. I'm a printmaker. What's printmaking? And uh, and then that's when he showed me, and I, I made my first dry point etching on a plexiglass and a lino cut and it was fucking awful the lino was i don't know probably like a century old and like brittle (laughs) and like was just miserable and to carve and you have the dullest tools well the tools were super dull they were the speedball lino cut tools and speedballs are sponsors (laughs) yeah no nothing against the tools they were just really old i'm just telling you but so then they switched me to wood for woodcut. Mm-hmm. And so I was using fucking pine, which is why I told you it should never be pine, <laughs> copper, lime, because carving pine sucks. Not even pine plywood, just like planks of pine with speedball lino cut tools. And I was miserable, but I yeah. also loved it. It was like the, it was the best. It, I just felt right. It was like, yeah, okay, I'm doing this. And all my prints are terrible and I still have them and I show them whenever I teach and I, mm-hmm. I'll like show my woodcuts from like after undergrad versus my first ones when I started. Mm. Why do you think that was? Why do you think it kind of lit you up in a way that it sounds like drawing and painting hitherto hadn't? I, I guess I, in a way, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I liked making things like I want to, because of what you were saying of this, like lost identity and like manufacturing and pride in that. I want to like put that back on my like 16 year old self. I'm sure that's bullshit. I just liked it. Yeah. I think I I I, just liked it. I too was thinking about maybe artificially or not drawing a line between your lineage of people who make things with their hands that is a little bit arduous and a little bit precise and a little bit needing some elbow grease yeah and printmaking yeah well there's and i'm not sure where your questions are going but there's there's a little bit more of a connection with my family lineage and printmaking that i'm sure we'll get to later mm-hmm. yeah i don't know i think i really think a lot of it was like escher did it i'm going to do it yeah I really do think it was probably mostly that the the labor that goes into printmaking is what has come out of the practice since. I, I, I think it was probably like, I just loved Asher. 
I want to make this stuff. I totally ripped off a bunch of his pieces when I was in high school. Yeah, like as you do. should. Yeah. And and then it kind of came into the labor thing as I went on through college and graduate school. So, when did you start making work about home and family and where you're from? I think I started making work about home my junior year of college, I think. Because, I mean, every once in a while, I would probably, like, dabble a little bit with, like, religious themes. I grew up Roman Catholic, so, like, in a way, that's home, but not... not the work I was making was more of a critique of of that kind of, like, just being a pissed-off Roman Catholic I was going to say, I feel like every undergrad artist with a religious background, like, needs to have their sacrilegious period exactly exactly <laughs> so get I it out of their system yeah so i wouldn't really count that as like making work about home my junior year though i took intro to printmaking and intro to glass blowing i think that they might have been the same semester i don't really remember but i definitely in uh in in intro to printmaking i was making work about like sailor tattoos or like tattoos and kind of stuff like that and thinking about maybe the water and growing up on Great Lake Erie. So I started kind of getting it that way. And another set of prints I made in that semester was about my mom passing away, which was a remake of some prints that I made in high school. So I guess in a way, but that's not necessarily home. That's my mom and family history. So it's kind of starting. And so I guess the first like piece that I can remember really being about this industrial, post-industrial home was this piece I made for my intro to glass class. We had to make a talisman and write a mm. screenplay, a, like a screenplay to go along with it or something like that. And... I didn't really write a screenplay. I wrote more of a poem to explain what it was. And the talisman was, it was a, this little glass cube with some rope wrapped around it. And the, what it was, its magical power was to bring industry back. Oh, really? So, so the poem was uh, the one line that I remember really liking. Cause I used to do this down by the lake. There's this street called Lakeshore Boulevard. And you can walk down it at night because there's no cars down there. Like, it's pretty empty, uh, particularly there's curfew and all that stuff. But just no one's down there. And so the one line I remember from this poem was, like, he walks down double yellow lines like a cowboy in a ghost town. And I just remember that from, like, walking around the streets, like, at night in Dunkirk. It's not a bustling town. Like, so there's nothing going on. So you can walk down the street and there's you're not you're going to be fine. And so it was like, yeah, all about like bringing industry back and like wanting this place that I had called home to be able to support me post-college because I'd seen my brothers go away and there was no coming back, right? Like uh, my oldest brother is like a PhD chemist, like there's nothing for him to do in Dunkirk. Yeah. So yeah, I would say it started with that piece probably. And then from there, at some point it must have expanded into your senior thesis project, which was really all about stories from home. Yeah, so I don't even know how that really happened. I had just gotten back from Christmas break, and I was at the coffee shop, and I was in my sketchbook, and I just remembered my grandfather, same one with the locomotive story, 
and he, this story about him playing this drinking game. Mm-hmm. And I just sketched out this glass of beer with two raw eggs in it, which is like the punchline of this story. And, you know, I just made this one drawing and I was like, this is pretty cool. And then we were in our class and we were talking about what we were going to do and blah, blah, blah. And I, I was really at this point already starting to like have the imposter syndrome or such that you need to have, which is like, mm-hmm. I want my work to like really do something like change, like be like a really big statement. Like I was, I think at the time was like freaking out that I wasn't going to like change the world or do shit like I weigh way or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, like what's the fucking point of making work if my work's not going to do that. And I showed this drawing to my professor, Laurel Carpenter, who's, who's awesome. And she, I forget exactly what she said, but like, she said something to the effect of like these story, like making work about this place, like this can change the world. Hmm. And that well, like kind of stuck with me. And I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll just, I can make, like, it, it was kind of someone saying like, you're allowed to make this. And, uh, that it didn't have to, yeah, I don't know, completely rebel against the oppressive forces of blah, 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 whatever. Mm. Um, like I was allowed to make people happy to laugh. And I think that was, that was part of her advice was like, you're putting good stuff in the world. That's, that's good. Mm. You're allowed to do that. I'm guessing that you're probably not alone in being a young artist who comes in kind of with that drive of I need to be Ai Weiwei, you know? Yeah. And that part of, I think, learning about art and why people connect to it, at least for me, and I think the way I connect to it, is the beauty in something being so specific. Like, it doesn't, on a way, like, it almost doesn't matter what the art is as long as it's the essence of the thingness that it's going for yeah and sitting in our home looking around at the art collection that we have which is very eclectic (laughs) is kind of make me think about that you know like we we have a mike pennekamp i can see behind you yep and it's of a ufo but the entire energy of it is so very much ufo-ness it is ufoissimo yeah and it's very specific it's telling a specific story and so i think maybe learning that that art can be that expansive is maybe a, a really important lesson for young artists yeah and I don't know, like now that you're talking about that, like we've also got Nathan Melt's uh, Robot Rabbits, yep. Watership Downs here. And like that print, you saw it and loved it and we got it and we framed it, we hang it up and it makes us happy. It brightens our day. That does so much more. Seeing you happy looking at that print does so much more f- to better my life than I Weigh Weigh giving the finger to uh what is it the the forbidden city i believe or that that photo that he took anyway the point is like nathan could have argued while he was making those rabbits like oh i'm not this isn't going to be i way way but like truly that piece has affected my life more dramatically mm-hmm. than some of the quote-unquote great pieces of art 
uh, again, I don't know if you've got questions leading to that, but that that thing, the like, what affects artists more than mm. the quote unquote great pieces out there, also plays a pretty big role in in my thinking about art. Yeah, yeah. So you go to Alfred University for your undergrad, and you do chemistry and fine arts. And you have this the show where you have all of these prints and their different stories and different jokes even just mm-hmm. from your family and you're selling them all $20 no holler. Thank you, Martin Mazora. Thank you, Martin Mazora. And then you graduate, you go to work in a factory for a bit and mm-hmm. kind of discover how difficult that really is. I lasted six months and threw in the towel. I, I was a professional prune juice taster not really. I did more than that, but it was, it's grueling. Yeah I, yeah. I couldn't hack it. And you end up going back to Alfred and you're a tech there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you meet a visiting scholar and uh, you guys get married. Yeah. I had questions <laughs> <laughs> and you want, you had answers and I wanted them. Yeah. yeah. And some, some other things. <laughs> answers. Uh, answers. <laughs> but at this time we're dating and engaged and married you're applying to graduate school mm-hmm. and you know despite the fact that your work's very much placed in western new york we end up going to the university of new south wales yeah a little further away a little further away in sydney and so you and I, in our greatest act of hubris to date, hopefully uh, <laughs> never yeah, hopefully to be matched that again. One just like is the pinnacle, and we don't try and outdo that one. Yeah, I ain't gonna make it out alive if we try and top it. <laughs> we move in together, get married, and move across the country and start graduate school within a six-month period. Yep. And so, uh, how'd that go? <laughs> so yeah you were a big help in getting me into graduate school and how did it go god fucking damn it it was it was brutal I didn't handle it well it was weird because the things I thought were going to be really challenging like I thought my like the critiques of my work and all and like having to like produce a whole bunch I like thought that was going to be the hard part and what, what really shook me was being away from my community all of these people and comforts that I relied on to kind of uh, keep my uh, unbeknownst to me anxiety in check wasn't there anymore my safety net was gone and I just, I, I couldn't figure out how to fit in. I was angry all the time. It was a, a classic, I was a piece of shit at the center of the universe. I either thought I was better than or not as good as everybody. Mm. And I just couldn't figure out how to do life. And yeah, it. I learned, I mean, I learned a lot about, reading and writing for research and I learned a lot about my art practice but what I really learned a lot about was myself Mm. and maybe that sounds a little cliche but yeah I think I I came out of graduate school with a 
with on one hand completely shattered and on the other hand feeling like okay like i i know who i am Mm. and and i didn't like that necessarily like i saw myself and i didn't like everything i saw but it led to a lot of accepting a lot of the like bad things that i've worked on and it accept to a lot of those things that i've uh come to kind of love and mm-hmm. know how to yeah lean into certain things and like like i'm a pretty emotional guy I cry a lot mm-hmm. anyone who's ever gone out drinking with me knows that i cry a ton and that's not a bad thing but after grad school i uh I, getting sober it was like I learned that like being emotional is not bad, but I know now kind of more how to do it in a healthy way rather than a bottle it all up and let it all out at once when I'm shit faced. Mm. So kind of despite all of that, that I was right there beside you for and going through it with you. And I think that you, you summed it up really beautifully you were making some pretty fucking cool work, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you can be a miserable, anxious uh, uh, person, but you made some great work in graduate school. Thanks. And some of it is actually what's in the five by five, five, is in the five by five. But maybe you could just talk kind of more generally about the ways in which graduate school on the artistic side, sort of solidified your practice, particularly maybe leaning into the number one theorist uh, that you referenced in your your thesis paper. Yeah, so I, the school I went to, University of New South Wales in Sydney, was a very theoretical school, theory with a capital T, and I, I really wanted to respect that tradition, and so I looked to a very well-respected theorist, one of the great theorists of our time, uh, Bruce Springsteen. And, uh, Our Lord and Savior. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, like I said, I was pretty miserable the whole time and I was very angry. So uh, when I got to this program that was very theoretical based, I was, I, I was, I was pissed and I spent two years rather than doing what I said as a joke just now of like leaning in and like getting everything I could get out of it. I was just an angry son of a bitch through it. I, at the time, was really angry about, like, modern artists or, you know, like, people, like, doing color fields and things that I, quote-unquote, thought, I can do that, right? That's not hard. Like, I want to learn, like, the ins and outs and technical minutiae of etching and litho and, like, fucking, I can paint a wall red for you if you want, but what's the point? (laughs) And where that led me in my rage was like, I started getting these ideas of like, well, I'm just gonna, if I can't make a etching of like a beautiful landscape, because that's not theoretical, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a wall and frame that and then hang my beautiful etching on the wall. That's actually the artwork. You know, I was going to like, I was going to do like trade labor as art for my like theory so that I could like design wallpaper that looked pretty and kind of get away get away with it you know and that led me to looking at like Ellsworth Kelly and 
he's got a series red yellow blue number three 1966 and it's exactly what it sounds like it's three big paintings one's red one's yellow one's blue and i was like well if i zoomed in to these sign paintings that i used to watch my dad make when i was a little kid for our little league baseball field like they would hang on the outfield fence if i zoomed in close enough i can get to red yellow and blue and so I started doing that. I started like recreating these signs that my dad painted, but only painting a cropped up portion of it. And one of them actually was eventually like completely yellow. And what I ended up realizing is like trying to get this flat piece of yellow completely flat. I couldn't do it because I was painting and it had texture. I just couldn't get that away. And so I started thinking about how like your materials that you use really matter. You know, like if you want that perfectly flat, smooth, you go and print it. Mm -hmm. If you want texture, you go and paint it. If you want it to be sculptural, you use ceramics or glass. The materials matter. And that kind of got me into some actual theory with a capital T of uh, new materialism where Mm -hmm. your your materials are are a collaborator. And yeah, so like it started out with rage and pure hatred (laughs) and lived there for at least two years, but it moved on to something a little more insightful, I think. Mm -hmm. And like looking at like the skills that my dad taught me, who's a quote unquote, just a factory worker. And they, I was like, wait a minute, I'm using these skills in graduate level art school. Like my dad's got to be something more like there's more here and uh, yeah that work eventually led me to my final thesis which was it was gonna be my whole like thesis statement was about like can I can I like make my dad an artist you know it was my thesis statement like can I make a factory laborer the same status as a fine artist right because you you have an undergrad sociology they'll talk about this you have prestige and you have like money basically and like you can have you can be making a lot of money and Mm -hmm. not have a lot of prestige you know go be a plumber you'll make a lot of money but you're a plumber right people look at you like a plumber go be a college professor you're probably not going to make that much money but fuck you're a professor Mm -hmm. at university right so i was trying to balance these two things out and i was going to make these like images about my dad's work shirts and uh as it kind of went on, I realized like the more I made work about my dad, yeah, I was showing him like this, like kind of reverence or whatever you want to call it. But my work, my name was still on the work and everyone would say like, wow, Tim, this is great. And my dad was still just a factory worker. And so what I ended up doing instead is I took his work shirts and they have all these like ink splatters on them and because because my dad makes offset lithography ink for a living or he did before he retired and so i stretched the shirts over stretcher bars and i framed them and i hung them up on the wall and i wrote about them as fine art objects and i put his name on the wall and so i didn't really have a graduate mfa thesis show my dad did Mm -hmm. and i was a quote-unquote i call it a duchampian curator and so I was like, no, I'm going to take the back seat. Like, I'm, I'm going to let my dad have a graduate show. And so in my paper, at the very beginning, I, I have something to the effect of, like, this is for my dad, who, as far as I'm concerned, gets an MFA mm. out of this. I feel like when you're talking about raising the factory worker to the status of an artist, 
Do you think that what you're essentially talking about is raising the labor that they do? That it's actually giving value to the to the labor maybe more than like the person as an abstract? Yeah, definitely. It's 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 valuing skill and craft and those things like we were talking about at the beginning with the locomotive, like those things take I mean, my dad knows more about litho ink than I ever will, right? You know, I got into Tamarind. I, I'm a fine art printer. People call me a master printer, blah, blah, blah. But my dad, who makes litho ink, and my uncle, who's a commercial offset lithographer, they know more about printing and ink than I ever will, guaranteed. They know the formulas. They know how to, like, troubleshoot. When I, I had an internship at Gamblin', and uh, my dad and my uncle both did this to me separately. I, I was like, hey, dad, look, I got to make a 50-pound batch of ink today. This was awesome, blah, 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 blah. He goes, 50 pounds, that's cute. My smallest is 10,000 pounds. <laughs> and my uncle, like, we were talking with him. I print, like, maybe the biggest edition I've ever done is 50, and there's, like, some wiggle room in there, right, for, like, what they look like. You know, he's printing 10,000 copies of things that are double-sided, four color double-sided and perfect and perfect right and so I think there's so much into that trade labor that we don't really recognize and you cannot yeah okay maybe it's not the most creative thing in the world but it's not the most creative thing in the world if you only look at it from like who designed the thing that's being printed right if you need to know how to like take that machine apart clean it and keep it running and, and hit a deadline there's a lot of creativity that actually goes into doing that labor one of the things I really liked about what you wrote about the final thesis show was you described your father as an artist who did a 30-year residency, was it? Yeah, what was like the yeah. wording? I could probably just read it if you wanted me to. I wrote a fake uh, catalog essay for my dad's solo exhibition. And I talked about how he was a contemporary of Jackson Pollock and Richard Prince and all these guys, Mark Toby. And uh, I basically wrote him this fake catalog excerpt. And I used... Do you used... want to just read it? Because it's, pre- it's not long and it's really good. Okay, I'll read it. Okay. I'll read it. Okay. You ready? So I wrote this fake catalog essay excerpt for my dad's solo show. And it just says, Echoing John Cage's rule to cast aside analysis in the midst of creation, it is finally here in the heterogeneous assemblage of Pauschek's controversial paintings that one can explore the artist's intention against a juxtaposition of the iconic and profoundly infamous giants of the art world. Concerned with issues of mark-making, chance, and humor, the artist deconstructs the phantasmagorical backdrop of the American factory informed by years of immersive research, which is realized through a referent akin to Solowit, Jackson Pollock, Mark Toby, and Richard Prince. Interested in notions of chance, Pauschek's provisional composition Cyan No. 5 was subjected to, as was his entire oeuvre, the indiscriminate will of clattering post-war machines over a period of 30 years. The revelatory work Magenta No. 29 is a clear inquiry into the process of Pollock, whose famous splatter questions the very notions of randomness and purpose. However, after the completion of Yellow, he severed his connexion with Pollock, as Pollock's admiration of Mark Toby became problematic for the artist who sought to challenge the ideas of mysticism championed by Toby in favor of his religious heritage rooted in Catholicism. 
The significance of this divide comes full circle with Pauschek's first solo exhibition, taking place in Canberra, Australia, where mere kilometers away is housed Pollock's Blue Poles, which made history in its purchase by the Australian government for $2 million and was directly inspired by Toby's Bars and Flails. Departing from the expressionism that had dominated his career to this point, and finding solace among the palimpsest of scribbles on batch notes and instructions salvaged from the factory bins, Pauchette created the final rhizomatic work key, Untitled Composition in Black, which is a hybrid of traditional oil and modern acrylic that is in dialogue with Richard Prince's joke drawings and is an exploration interrogating the ultimate joke the haunting realization that is the futility of our lives embodied by work shirts and manifested as paintings that smell like yellow. <laughs> so to write that paragraph, I looked up a Google article that was something like 30 art words that should be ditched in the new year, and I crammed in about 26 of them. So it sounds pretty good, but it's total bullshit. It's made up. None of it's true. And I don't even think grammatically or like definition wise it makes any sense oh but, um, it does, does it, it makes sense. some some of it does some of it makes yeah. pretty good sense yeah. yeah and so like that is about t-shirts that your dad wore to a factory that you stretched over canvases yeah, yeah it is and so like with that ending uh thing my my thesis is called process colors which speaks to cmyk printing and then there was of course modern baseball which has uh ellsworth kelly reference to red yellow and blue and but the whole thing about painting smelling like yellow the rest of that thesis keeps saying shirts that smell like xylene and that chapter in it is called shirts that smell like yellow and so when i got to take my first printing class in college i opened a can of yellow litho ink and the smell hit me and it was my dad's work shirt and i was like i called him up and i was like dad what do you do because i had known he'd made ink but you know i think in like ballpoint pens or something like that and so he just over the phone he was like oh I make offset litho ink for the commercial printing industry and so I without really realizing it fell into the family trade so we've been spending a lot of time talking about your dad and how he basically did your seeing your uh graduate school thesis for you oh yeah. yeah no i checked out fully at that point yeah <laughs> he did the work anyway the hard work yeah the making you were just a researcher but your mom is actually kind of at the center of the pieces that are going to be at print austin yeah yeah and so i do talk about my relationship with my dad a lot in my work but the relationship we have is because of my mom and my mom was great like I I miss her a ton okay so she passed away when I was 13 and you know at that point my brothers had moved away to college and so it went from being a household family of five to just me and my dad and the dog the dog was there too Marty Marty God rest his soul and uh, <laughs> uh, he's buried in the backyard actually uh, so he's still technically there point is it was just the two of us and so my dad and I got super close in a way that my brothers and he didn't just because that's what it was and so my mom I'd, I've always made art about her as well like I said in high school I made these prints about her I revisited them in college and a lot of it's been like trying to figure that out or at least like keep it down at least till it all came spilling out 
13 years later when I finished graduate school, 15 years later at that point. And so, yeah, the work that's in print Austin is a series that I did for graduate school about her travel spoon collection. And so for her, she collected these spoons or had her friends or whoever bring them back for her. She just had these spoons, right? So like we didn't take vacations. I don't think my dad worked at an ink factory. My mom did something with accounts or something or other. Like she worked kind of as a receptionist in a doctor's office. And the first vacation I remember taking was like in sixth grade, we went to my cousin's wedding in Florida. And that was like a huge deal, which I guess would have been the only vacation we ever took because she passed away two years later. And so these travel spoons in a way were kind of like her way of experiencing the world uh, when she couldn't go anywhere. And like, like, so what you mean by travel spoon, just so people can picture it. Yeah. It's the the little souvenir spoons, not functional spoons, but like the ones that you see at truck stops and gift shops and wherever shops outside temples in Thailand, just just souvenir places that they usually have a an icon or something of that represents the location at the top. Yeah. 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 And so like the work that you'll see in the five by five, you've got. There's one that's like my collection after mom. So once mom passed away, I kept collecting these things. I almost bought, I bought them to a point where my dad kind of had to be like, because he was paying for them. He had to be like, <laughs> you don't have to buy every single one you see. And uh, so there's like the one that's like my, my collection after mom's. And there's one that's dad's collection after mom's, which are these spoons that he like found after she passed away up in our attic. And I think there's one, so there's one that we had gotten from Thailand, Japan, and Las Vegas. So it was kind of like, thanks for the wedding rings because you have my mom's wedding rings. Mm -hmm. And so it was like... His like Thailand, Japan, and Las Vegas, that's... Where we got married in Vegas at SGCI, where we flew through on our way to our honeymoon in Japan, and then we did our honeymoon in Thailand. So it kind of, they all kind of tell these stories. The other one that's in there is, I think it's Family Vacations. And that one's like the Mickey Mouse themed ones because of that time we went to Florida. And I just remember those. There's another one in the series that's not in the five by five. It's like mom and dad. And that's a Mickey and Minnie Mouse one that they probably got on their honeymoon or something. And, you know, there's one titled Brothers where it's two Eiffel Tower spoons, one that Matt got and one that Ray got. And just they they each tell a story. And so the the spoons themselves represent these mile markers, Las Vegas before and after, you know, the ones she bought in Vegas when she went, the ones I bought when she was gone at our wedding, the Vermont before and after when she went to visit her brother, uh, when I went later in life without her. And, and they all through the titles tell those stories, Vermont, Vermont before and after Vegas before and after thanks for the wedding rings, things like that. So I kind of like to play with the title to give you a little bit more information into my personal story, but you get to kind of make up stories for my work as it goes. You know, at least I hope you can. I, I tend not to, even though everything I draw is pretty personal, it's usually, I hope, vague enough that you can bring your own narrative to it. And if you want a little bit of insight into my work, you can read the title usually. And, and that gives you maybe a jumping off point of where I might be coming from. Mm. So why do you think you're drawn to making work about your family and about where you're from? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think... 
you know, I guess if I have to figure it out right here, right now, it's like I miss this thing I had. Like, I knew life a certain way, and things were easy. And, yeah, and then when mom died, it was like, everything got harder. And uh, I grew up a little bit faster than I would have liked to. And, I don't know, I guess maybe I... I have this longing for home, for for this place that feels safe and secure and where I'm supposed to be, mm. you know, and yeah, that's kind of what I'm going with anyway. I think that's beautiful. That, that, that feels right to me, and I think it's something that a lot of people can connect with. Yeah. Yeah, you know, even if you didn't, lose a parent young or have something disruptive, but just that that sense of stability and home and place and routine and knowingness yeah. that can come from just a stable childhood, yeah. you know? And particularly these last years in this country have felt so terribly unstable. Yeah. And I think we all can identify with like wanting to work our way back. Yeah. I mean, right? Like, who doesn't want to be safe in their home? Mm -hmm. What is it? Food, water, and shelter. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, yeah. I mean, I had it good. Like, I'm not trying to say I didn't. My life's fucking awesome. And my dad and I had a great relationship. And no, it's not perfect. But things were awesome and like he helped me go to college and like I I had a lot of good stuff going for me but yeah I think you're you're right that like I think that is something a lot of people can relate to whether you have the good thing you don't want to lose it or you had it and you lost it or you never had it and you want it like Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's what it's about is I, I miss home Tim. Yeah. Where can people find you and follow you and see your work? Yeah. So I have a website. It is timpauschek.com. <laughs> it is timpauschek.com. And I've got an Instagram, uh, which is timpauschek underscore studio. I also run the Santa Fe Printing House with my uh, friend and partner, Josh Orsburn. And you can find us at santafeprintinghouse.com as well as on Instagram at santafeprintinghouse. Beautiful. We didn't even get to talk about Santa Fe Printing House, I realized. Well, we'll have to have you and Josh back on together. That would be a good one. Or at least Josh. Maybe Josh. Yeah. Or, you know, do, do an episode with just Josh and then one with Santa Fe Printing House. I'm taking over the podcast. I'm, 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 you let me out in front of the mic once and never put me back <laughs> co-host from now on <laughs> I'm even gonna like join Ronaldo's episodes no I won't do that well Tim 
you remain my favorite, very, very favorite person to talk to. Thanks. I fell in love talking to you because we were long distance and all we had was talking. (laughs) And I feel really honored to have been witness to everything in recent years in your practice and in your personal development because it's been beautiful to see and I'm really I'm really proud to be your wife. Oh, thanks love. I really appreciate it and I just want to put out there formally on the record when we started this podcast. I hated it. I hated doing the editing. You hated everything. Everything everything back then. Well, I hated everything, but I especially (laughs) hated this podcast. And it was a great idea. We've gotten so many opportunities because of it. You were right. I was wrong. And I'm sorry. (laughs) If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best way you can support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Haley Takahashi. We talk about her journey as an art history student turned artist, the particulars and complexities of drawing on Yukioi imagery as a Japanese American artist, her long-standing self-portrait practice, and how it shows up in her current work. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.